Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 1. Lord, because this book is your truth, it's truth from heaven, recorded, written by men, superintended by the Holy Spirit, so that the words tell us truth and convey your mind. We pray, Lord, that as we read them, we would not be hardened to them, but open. Indeed, that they would transform the way we think. As we study John the Baptist, I pray, Father, that we'd be inspired by his testimony and witness that he gives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to look up the word great in Webster's Dictionary, one of the definitions is simply someone or something that is considerably above normal or above average. Or remarkable would be another synonym for great. Somebody who's great stands out from the crowd I read a little article in a magazine that 92% of professional ball players who sign contracts with professional teams, 92% never see a major league game. Now, if that's true, it was in Harper's Magazine. I don't know if that's true or not. But if that's true, that means only 8% of baseball players in the major leagues would be considered great. Small percentage that are above average and remarkable. Now, sometimes you'll see the term great attached to a name, like a formal name. Uh, Alexander the Great, or in the Bible, Herod the Great. Also, Napoleon was called Napoleon the Great by his subjects. And I discovered 142 people in history who used the term great as applied to their name. I am so-and-so the Great. Well, you know what that does. As soon as you apply the term great to your name, it also implies that others around you are not so great. I heard about a man who went to a psychiatrist and said, Doctor, you got to help me. I'm suffering from an inferiority complex. And the doctor said, well, let's do some tests. After they ran the different tests, the doctor brought the man back in and said, Well, i got to tell you something. We did all of the tests. It is not a complex. You really are inferior. (laughs) Most people would never think of greatness next to John the Baptist, in the ancient times especially. The idea of great wouldn't come to their minds when they heard of John. Eccentric, uh uh-huh. Odd, yep. But not great. Most people today know of him as the ancient hippie who lived out in the desert and ate bugs and spoke very fiery, bold things. And they would call him uh, unconventional and interesting, but certainly not great. But it was Jesus Christ who said, and I quote, I tell you, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. That's a remarkable thing to say. Because John's ministry wasn't very long. It was short. He was cut uh, short by Herod the Great. Literally, he was beheaded. His uh, ministry wasn't all that extensive. It only covered a small portion of Judea. And yet, his life counted for something. It was great. Why is that? 
Well, let me read something to you that I found quite remarkable and I think very true. This is from a business review. New York Life Insurance Company of all places, business review. Great men have but a few hours to be great. Like the rest of us, they must dress, bathe, and eat. And being human, they must make visits to the dentist, doctor, and barber and meet with their wives about domestic matters. What makes men great is their ability to decide what is important and then focus their attention on that. That's exactly what John the Baptist did. He found out what was important and focused all of his attention on that, and that is someone named Jesus Christ. It's all summed up in in a verse we're about to read where John looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God. His life was all about him. Now, we've already touched on John twice in reading through John chapter 1. He was introduced to us up in verse 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Also in verse 15. But now in verse 19, that prologue is done. We get into the story itself. Here's something interesting about the story. We're talking about John the Baptist. All of the three other gospel writers record John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. John, the apostle, does not. By the time we pick up the story, the baptism of Jesus is past tense. He has been out in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil, and now he's coming back. And as he's coming back in the middle of the story, that's where John picks it up. And what we're going to find this morning in our verses, which is verses 19 through 34, is how do we witness in this world for Christ. I'll ask it another way. How can my life be significant? How can I taste greatness as God defines it? How can my life count for something more than just me breathing air and taking up space? How can I be a representative for Christ? Well, John answers those questions. And there's two basic ways, and that's our outline this morning. Number one is identity, and number two is activity. We're going to find out who John was and who he wasn't. That's his identity. We're going to find out what he did, and the second thing he did is the most important activity. And that answers the question for us. We need to have the right identity, the correct identity, and the correct activity. I'll explain as we go. Let's begin at the beginning of the paragraph, verse 19 of John chapter 1, where we get the identity of John the Baptist. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? They'll ask that question twice. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Another word for the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, Nope. And then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Let's paint the picture. Let's set the scene. 
There's a delegation of Jewish authorities who have come all the way from Jerusalem, 20-some miles, down to a barren place by the Jordan River where John, this eccentric guy, is baptizing people. Probably it was the Sanhedrin. Have you heard that term? That's the ruling body of Jewish spiritual authority in Jerusalem. And they're the ones that sent a delegation out. Why? Because John has a huge following. They want to know why. And there is a reason why. It's because messianic expectation was so high in Israel at the time. And all these people were coming out to hear this new preacher down by the Jordan. And the Jewish leaders were scratching their heads going, who is this guy? You know, probably today if there was somebody out baptizing at the Rio Grande River, nobody would really care. They might get a few little reports on a newspaper on the fourth or fifth page, but this was front page stuff because so many people had come out. Now you'll notice a term in verse 19. I draw your attention to it. It's the term Jews. You need to know what that is. Seventy-one times in this book, John will use the word Jews. He is not speaking of racial identity. He is not speaking racially at all or ethnically. He's speaking legally and formally. And this is a term John uses more than all of the other gospel writers to speak of the ruling body of Jewish people who are opposed to Christ. After all, all the people down at the Jordan were Jews. But this was a special class of people hostile to him who sent the delegation out. You'll also note that it was made up of priests and Levites. Priests and Levites. That makes sense. Because John the Baptist was a Levite. In fact, John the Baptist's dad was a priest. Which would mean that John would one day, hopefully, be a priest. It was passed on from generation to generation. So, John the Baptist was a PK. Do you know what that means? A priest's kid, technically. Son of the priest Zacharias. But this was a priest kid gone rogue. He's down preaching in the desert. Priests never preached. They only performed rituals in the temple. This one was different. They want to find out why. So they ask him who he is. It's interesting that they ask him who he is, and John tells them who he's not. He answers the question negatively and then positively. So he confessed and said, I am not the Messiah, because that's exactly who they thought he was. And again, here's why. The Jewish people, by this time, had been so enslaved and subjugated historically for hundreds of years, they were crying out for a Messiah. They were hoping the Messiah would come, and they believed he would come soon. Uh, The Greeks oppressed them, the Seleucids, the Ptolemies, now the Romans oppressed them. Before that, they were in captivity by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. So they have a history of being oppressed. And every morning, a pious Jewish person would wake up and pray this prayer. I believe in the coming of Messiah, and even though he tarries, yet I will wait every coming day. They were waiting. And history tells us that just before the time Jesus showed up, right around this time, messianic expectation was at fever pitch. I found a book. I wanted to share a paragraph with you. It's written by Rabbi Abba Hallel Silver. 
The book is entitled The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. And here's the quote. Prior to the first century of the Christian era, the Messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, that's right here, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, that's right here, witnessed a remarkable outburst of enthusiasm and Messianic emotionalism. So that when Jesus came into Galilee, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, he was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. Now listen to this final statement. The Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century of the Christian era. That's right here. So no wonder they're down there going, Okay, who are you? He goes, oh, let me just set your mind at ease. I am not the guy. I am not the Messiah. Well, they ask him a follow-up question. Are you Elijah? Nope. I'm not him. Now, why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Well, first of all, the way he looked. The way he looked and the way he acted and, and his eccentric behavior reminded them of the prophet Elijah. You remember in 2 Kings chapter 8, it describes Elijah as a hairy man with a leather belt. So Elijah's nickname, maybe was hairy. He was out there just kind of all hairy in a big leather belt and preached really boldly. So now John the Baptist comes years later wearing camel's hair and a leather belt and saying the kind of things he said. So they said, are you Elijah? Now here's why they thought he could be Elijah. There was a prediction in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament that predicted Elijah would come. The Lord said that he would send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they thought this may be Elijah who's going to announce the Messiah. Are you him? He goes, nope, I am not Elijah. Oh, well, now we have a problem. And if you're a Bible student, you know what that problem is. Here's the problem. In Matthew 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist to his disciples, he said, if you can receive it, he is John the Baptist, or he is Elijah who is to come. If you can receive it, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. So you've got Jesus saying he is Elijah, and you've got John the Baptist saying, I'm not Elijah. Moreover, before John was born... And Zacharias, his father, heard the prediction that John, his son, would be born. The angel Gabriel said, you will name him John, and he will come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So how do we fix that problem? It's really easy, actually. Let's do it together. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. I wanted to do it during the Bible study, because otherwise I'll get questions about it afterwards. Matthew 17. Verse 10. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Did you get that? Jesus says the prophecy given by Malachi about Elijah has not yet been fulfilled. That's coming in the future. But watch this. 
But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So you put it all together, and John the Baptist came and fulfilled Malachi in that he came, as the angel said, in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, not in the person of Elijah. So he was the partial fulfillment. He was a preview of coming attractions. Jesus said, however, Elijah the prophet, the real guy, is going to come again in the future. And we know exactly when that's going to be. Malachi said he will come before the great and Notable or terrible day of the Lord. That's the tribulation period. And all you have to do is turn to Revelation chapter 11. There are two witnesses. And one of the witnesses described sounds an awful lot like the prophet Elijah. And he comes announcing right before the great tribulation period. Even as Malachi predicted. So both are true. Anyway, back to John chapter 1, he, de, uh, he denies being the Messiah, he denies being Elijah. Notice the next question, are you the prophet? Now, what prophet is that? Well, it's the prophet. We don't know exactly what the prophet refers to. Nobody really does. It could be um, that they were thinking of Jeremiah or uh, Isaiah. There was this strange writing that had circulated among the Jews, Talmudic writings and others collected, that said, right before the Messiah shows up, the prophet Jeremiah or Isaiah will show up and restore the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place in worship. Maybe that's what they meant when they said, are you the prophet? A second possibility is a prediction Moses made in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said, the Lord, your God will send to you another prophet like unto me, him shall you hear. Now, most of us believe that is a reference to the Messiah himself. It could be that they erroneously were attributing that to some prophet that's going to come to announce the Messiah. But he said, no, I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Well, by now they're pretty frustrated at John's very short negative responses. Nope, nope, nope. And so they press him. Verse 22. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And now he answers the question positively. This is who he is. Verse 23. I love this verse. He said, I am. And they're probably, yeah, yeah. I am. Well, who? Get this. The voice. That's all I am. I'm just the voice. Jesus, he's the word. I'm just the voice. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's right. Jesus is the message. He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Me, I'm just, I'm just the messenger. I'm just the voice. I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord. I'm just the road worker. He's the road that you have to walk on. You have to get right with God. It's an interesting answer. 
John certainly could have answered that a number of different ways when they said, well, who are you? He could have said, I am, let me tell you who I am. I am the son of the great priest Zacharias who serves in the temple. He could have said, let me tell you who I am. I am the only person filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. As it it says in Luke chapter 1. He could have said, I am the greatest man who ever lived. And it was all true. He was. I am the forerunner of the Messiah. He just says, in humility, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's his identity, the voice. The message is Jesus. The messenger is John. Allow me to give you a quick thumbnail sketch of John and how we got here. John's parents were Zacharias and Elizabeth, both old people who couldn't have babies. They were old and childless. Zacharias was a priest. He was in the temple changing the incense at the altar of incense when one day the angel Gabriel, the the big dog angel, shows up and says, Zacharias, you're going to have a son. You and your wife Elizabeth, she's pregnant. She's going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the fathers back to the children. And he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. Well, you know, for most people, that'd be enough, not for Zach. Zach goes, I don't believe you. I I need like a sign. Okay, the angel Gabriel showed up. You're hearing him speak and seeing him. And you want a what? A sign? So he goes, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And struck him dumb. He couldn't talk. Now, I don't know if he talked much when he was with Elizabeth at home, but now he can't say a word. So he has to come out of the temple, and he's all excited, but all he can say is, Well, meanwhile, Mary, Mary, the Virgin Mary, has just become impregnated by the Holy Spirit. And she goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who will be the mother of John the Baptist. So they're related. And as Mary comes to see Elizabeth, who by this time is five to six months pregnant with John the Baptist, Elizabeth says to Mary, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ear, the babe leaped for joy in the womb. Isn't that beautiful? And eventually John the Baptist was born. They typically would have called him Zacharias after his father, but the angel said you're going to call him John. So he can't talk. He scribbles out on a little pad, call him John. Like, Don't mess with this angel, John. And as soon as he wrote that, he could speak. And he spoke and he said to his boy, And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That was the baby. But the baby John grew. And probably he got to be a teenager. And as he was a teenager, I can just hear the conversation. Honey, have you seen what John's wearing? <laughs> Camel's hair. Oh, don't worry about it. All the kids are wearing that stuff now. Just, just let it go. But then John, John wanted to leave Jerusalem and go way out in the middle of nowhere and become some herald for the Messiah. 
Now, John was eccentric, but that's probably because he took what we call a Nazarite vow. You can find that in the book of Numbers. A Nazarite vow was a vow of consecration, where John would never be allowed to cut his hair, so you can imagine what he looked like. He could never touch anything that defiled him like a dead person, so if his father ever died, he couldn't even go to the funeral because he took a lifelong Nazarite vow. He couldn't take anything from the vine. He couldn't drink wine. He couldn't eat grapes. He couldn't have raisins. So he lived a very strict life of separation, an uncontaminated life, because he wanted nothing to hinder the message he would preach. And if that is ever a reason for preachers not to do certain things, that's it. Live an uncontaminated life so that nothing will hinder your ability to preach the message. That was John. That's who he was. He's out in the wilderness. He pulls this scripture out 700 years written before Isaiah 40 and said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That's his identity. Now let's look at the activity of John the Baptist. Verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they said to him saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ nor Elijah? nor the prophet. John answered, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred or existed before me, whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So here's John, not only the voice... But he's baptizing people. He's putting people in the water and bringing them back up. And they're looking at that going, so so what are you doing out here doing this kind of an activity? A little background will help. The nation of Israel, historically, had all been baptized, so to speak, when they crossed the Jordan River years before under Joshua. They went into the riverbed and they walked out of it and came into their land. And they called that the baptism of the nation. And so John goes to that spot and he baptizes. Now, typically, baptisms were done for non-Jews becoming Jews, Gentiles becoming Jews. They called them proselytes. Three things were required. If suddenly you're a pagan Gentile and you believe in God, you want to join the Jewish clan, three things. You've got to, number one, be instructed by a scribe who will teach you Bible stuff. Number two, if you're a male, circumcision. And number three, baptism. And when you come out of the waters of baptism, it symbolizes you're leaving the old life and you have joined the new Jewish community. Well, no wonder the Levites and priests were a little puzzled. Because John isn't baptizing Gentiles to become Jews. He's baptizing Jews. And it's a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So they're scratching their head. I love John's answer. John is saying, look, I'm baptizing with water, but one is coming who was before me. And what John does is simply dismiss the water baptism as being all that important. And he points to Christ. And I want you to see how he does that. Verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold. Anytime you see behold, it means, hey, look, or Check it out. Hey, check it out. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man 
who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven upon him like a dove and remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So, so you get the scene. They're coming out from Jerusalem and they're shocked that John's baptizing people in the desert. And John goes, you know what? This really isn't about me or about water. And he points to Jesus. It's really about him. What John does, get this, he takes the stage light that they shine on him and tweaks it over and shines it on Jesus. It's all about him. I baptize with water. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. And John says two things about Jesus. Two things. One concerning his person and the other concerning his mission. Number one, he says, this man is God. This is the one I told you about who existed before I ever existed. Even though John was older, he he existed before me. And he calls him the son of God. A term you will find in this book is the same denotation as having the same nature as God. And really, that's the whole point of chapter 1. The apostle John, the author, uh, opens up by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and that's Jesus. And I call as my first witness, John the Baptist. John, what do you say? Yep, I agree. He's God. He's the Son of God. He lived and existed before I did. Now, to me... There's something wonderful happening here. So if Jesus' mother Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were cousins, that makes Jesus and John what? Cousins, like second cousins. To me, this adds an enormous weight of credibility to the testimony of John the Baptist because how many of you would ever say of your cousin, my cousin is God? Or when your cousin comes to the family reunion, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. They grew up together. They had gone up to the feast several times together. Families did that back then. They had many conversations. They played together in the streets. And after years and years, John the Baptist was convinced, yep, my cousin is the one who existed before all. He is the Son of God, and he is the Lamb of God. It's amazing. Consider that phrase in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. Now that's his mission. The first was his person. This is his mission. Now what was, what was John the Baptist thinking when he said of Jesus, Hey look, there's the Lamb. Because the Lamb didn't sound all that impressive. The Jews were looking for a lion-like ruler. The Lion of Judah. As Genesis 49 predicted. They wanted a king. God sent him a Lamb. Lambs are docile. There's no threat to a lamb. Nobody um, has lambs to guard their stuff. You never see a sign, beware of lamb. It's Lambo. There's no threat there. No, what John was thinking when he said this, 
was, he was thinking sacrificially. See, he was the son of a priest. And the priest would sacrifice lambs. It was an animal whose blood was shed to cover the sin of Israel. Maybe John the Baptist, when he said, Behold the Lamb, was thinking all the way back to the Passover when the blood was put on the lintels and doorposts. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, as we're bringing this to a close, what I want you to think about is Jesus Christ as John recognizes him. He's the Lamb. Some will say, well, I I believe Jesus is a great teacher. Well, he is. He's like the best. But that's not why he came. Just to say a few nice teaching things and make people go, oh, makes me feel warm. He was a good teacher, but that's not why he came. Others will say, I've always thought Jesus was a great miracle worker. Well, you're right about that, but that's not why he came. Others will say, well, I look to Jesus as simply a fine, the finest example of love. Well, you're right, he, he is that, but that's not why he came. He came as a lamb to get killed, to shed blood, to take away, words of John the Baptist, take away the sin of the world. So that is John's identity and that is John's activity. John knew who he wasn't, John knew who he was. John had an activity of uh, uh, some ritual that would point people in the direction of getting ready for God, but that really wasn't the big issue. The big issue was the one himself who was coming. That was his activity, pointing to Jesus. So now I want to close and give you four quick points that we've learned here today, applicational points, to answer the question we began with. How can my life make an impact? How can my life make a difference? How can I witness to the unbelieving world For Jesus Christ. Number one, be aware. Be aware. Or or know who you are. Be aware of who you are. Know your calling. Know what gifts God has given you. And and part, part of the discovery in finding out who you are is finding out who you're not. John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. Now, I'm going to say something that's painfully obvious. You're not the Messiah. Now, you remember that when somebody comes to you, especially if you have a a soft, tender heart and you want to help fix people and you're a counselor or you're in the ministry and they come to you because they want you to solve the problem. You realize something. You're not the Messiah. You can lead people to him. You can pray for them and you can direct them to the one who has the answers. But you're, you're not the answer. You're not the answer. And when you remember that, it takes an enormous burden off people who minister in his name. John said, I'm not the Messiah. I know who I am. I know what my place is. I'm aware of my gifts. I'm really a nobody, but I'm pointing to a somebody. So that's number one, be aware. Number two, be vocal. Be vocal. John said, I am a voice. Not I am a lifestyle, not I am an example. I'll tell you why I say that. Because a lot of people will say, well, I'm not really called to open my mouth and talk about Jesus to unbelievers. I haven't been given that gift. I can't ever say anything, but I can live an example and I can live a lifestyle. And you're right about that. We should live an example and we should live a lifestyle. But 
If you don't tell people what Christ has done in your life, they're never going to know the reason you're such a wonderful, awesome, exemplary person. Others are just going to say, that guy's awesome. She's amazing. She's always sweet and forgiving and loving. And I guess it's just one in a million. That's why we have to give the word voice and speak and tell people and explain to people when they say, who are you? And you can tell them, be the voice, articulate, speak the gospel. Number three, be filled. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 1.15 says, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's what gave him the boldness to stand up for what he believed. You think John really cared if the priests or Levites liked what he said or liked him? You think he was bending his message around the audience that was asking him these questions? You think John got bummed out if the Levite said, well, if we don't get what we want, we're going to go down to the baptismal hole down the street where another guy's baptizing and listen to him. He didn't care. He wanted to be faithful to God and filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, and give people the truth that would set them free. So, be aware, be vocal, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the fourth, final way to be a witness. Be a signpost. Be a signpost. Point people to Jesus. Just like John said, don't make this about me or about my water baptism. Let's make it about the one, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I'll tell you why this is important. If you've ever engaged in a conversation with an unbeliever, you know that they like to digress away from them and Jesus and talk about peripheral issues. They'll say, well, why are there so many religions? And you could spend a half an hour trying to explain that. Well, how come there's so many denominations even within Christianity? And they, they want to get you on that. And, and all of those are good issues, but the issue is them and Jesus. And talk about the claims of Christ. Hey, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Point to Him. And when you point to Jesus, please do this. Point to the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the Lamb. The biblical Jesus is the Lamb. You can't have a discussion that is faithful to God unless you talk about Jesus coming to die on the cross for their sins and He raised from the dead and He lives today and He has the power to change their life. You talk about His sacrifice on the cross. Otherwise, you're not talking about the real Jesus. Oh yeah, my friends, they believe in Jesus. He's just the teacher, the nice guy, the whatever. Talk about the Lamb. Now, I've been accused, you've been accused, we as Christianity have been accused of a bloody religion. I've heard, well, Christianity is a bloody religion. You betcha. That's what it's all about. That is the very heart of it all. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, the Bible says. That's why he came. Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Boy, he got to the very heart of it. I told you about Christmas cards that I have kept that are unusual or amazing to me. Here's another one I found in my collection. It simply said, and I love the way it's put, if our greatest need would have been information, God would have sent an educator. 
If our greatest need would have been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need would have been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need was pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness. So God sent a Savior. John knew that. John was all about that. And he left a mark and he was great. Because he knew who he wasn't, he knew who he was, and he knew that the most important thing is to point people to Jesus. Your Christmas season will be the best ever if you use this season as an opportunity to do just that. And so, Father, we close by praying that that would be the case. That as we celebrate the birth and as people behold the baby in the manger, we might, in a few words and in a few moments of time, help them to behold the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The one who was born with the explicit purpose to die, to take upon him sin, transgression, so that we might experience forgiveness and love. Lord, I pray for this wonderful group of people, your people, your congregation, men and women, young and old, parents struggling with raising children, some of them single parents. Lord, I I pray that this season, they don't have to stand on the corner, but just in little ways as they meet people, to be faithful to simply point to Jesus as the Lamb of God. I pray for them. I pray for them to be encouraged this season in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.